0: Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, it's Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how are you?
1: I'm grand, thanks Ed. I'm still reeling. Maybe that's a half-decent fishing <laughs> metaphor because I've just discovered the, as The Independent wrote, quote, gobsmackingly awful, end quote, twist in recent release Serenity starring Matthew Mm. McConaughey and Anne Hathaway amongst others because on the super cool shot reverse shot whatsapp group chat we were treated to uh, Matt Risby who can't join us this evening as we are recording but he did treat us to pretty much a live live feed of it but Mm -hmm. with no plot details solely his reactions which is which is the only kind of live feed I want really um, so no spoilers, but I've now found it out because I really can't be bothered to watch it. But now I want to, actually, <laughs> just to see how how we reach that and how if in any way we recover. So yeah, that's how I am.
0: Yeah, I greatly enjoyed reading Matt's reactions to those. I, I already knew the plot of the movie because I'd read a breakdown of it when it came out over here in the US and everyone everyone's reaction was, Oh my god! I had no idea that's what that movie was about, and it's like, okay, I could watch this, or I could just like find the best article breaking down what the movie actually involves. And I went on—I think it was probably Slash Film or something—they'd written a particularly fun breakdown of all of the various beats, and my my jaw dropped so far like a like a, a moray eel trying to eat something larger than itself like I, it was so gobsmacking i really could not countenance how exactly that that movie resolves in that way so i i was kind of gleeful reading all of matt's texts and being like <laughs> oh man he's he's going to get to it he's going to get to the thing that happens <laughs> and we get, we're gonna see how how he responds to it and that was uh immensely fun and i'm I'm going to hazard a guess that it's probably more fun than watching the movie although Matt seemed very very taken with just how utterly bonkers it is. So I think if it if it hits Netflix or something over here I'll probably will pop it on of an evening just to just to gaze into it and try to try to figure out how exactly it, that will ended up happening.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's, it's reminding me a little bit of um sort of not quite the inverse but within the same vein of only Uh, engaging with horror films by reading their wikipedia plots as we spoke about a little while ago Mm, it's almost mm. like oh this is so bad i kind of need to gauge quite how bad and from what i've gleaned from the articles that i've read quite recently one of the characters is called dill and i'm like well is that intentional because dill goes well with fish (laughs) and there's you know i think so I, right dill's one of my favorite herbs not just with fish but this isn't a recipes podcast all i will say is that i genuinely thought you two were pulling my tail my scaly <laughs> tail when you mentioned the fish called justice mm-hmm. because i got yeah. this kind of a fish called wonder remake flashing before my eyes but then also uh because i was that tired when it initially came through i misread it as revenge and I was like, mm. wait, so a fish called Justice is best served cold, like sushi or a kind of ceviche? And I'm going back onto recipes now. I've had my dinner, I swear. I don't know why. I do know why. It's because I'm
0: obsessed with food. So. <laughs> I hear the phrase, a fish called Justice, I just remember the early 90s cartoon Fish Police, which uh almost no one remembers i think at this point its greatest cultural uh footprint might be the fact that it appears as a gravestone in a gag in the simpsons once where they just included the names of a bunch of other animated shows that had been commissioned in the wake of the simpsons that got cancelled <laughs> and uh, but but i remember as a kid watching that show and thinking oh great it's a detective show set in a city populated by fish and As is often the case, like one joke from a show will lodge in my mind many years later, and there'll be no, absolutely no purpose to it still being there at this point. And the one for that one was two characters having an altercation on the street because one of them's driving because the fish drive cars, and it's a fish, it's a fish and a crab, and the fish shouts to the crab, "You drive like you walk." Which is such a such a funny, weird joke to put in a cartoon, ostensibly for kids, which is already in and of itself just this like completely bizarre concept of a detective show about fish set in a kind of vaguely noirish world, in which I I think the main fish was voiced by veteran Hollywood character actor Ed Asner, of all people. It's like every element of that show doesn't make any sense, and that's kind of that's maybe why it really lodged itself in my in my young brain.
1: I just can't wait for the inevitable crossover with Detective Pikachu.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, that seems to be... If they own the rights to it, that's the way you kind of revive that show.
1: Every uh, day we stray further from God's light, but closer <laughs> to that fuzzy electric rat, so...
0: <laughs> so we'll uh, quickly go on to the news for this week, and this is kind of uh, carrying on from a story from last week. last week. Matt and I talked about the fact that the Rotten Tomatoes page for captain marvel was being review bombed by people who decided that they wanted to kind of like lower the audience score and the review of it uh the the, the kind of the rt score of it even before it had come out and so rotten tomatoes have taken the i would say fairly common sense decision to say oh actually now people aren't going to be able to vote on the audience score for a movie until it actually is released which kind of seems like something you would have thought they would have done earlier because it's such an obvious decision to make, but you know, apparently it was never really, or they never really considered it a problem until, until now, and this has somewhat predictably kicked off a uh, a backlash against people who wanted to <laughs> rate a movie they hadn't seen poorly and saying it was like an infringement on free speech, and like you just can't kind of think, ah, oh, just fuck off, <laughs> just all of <laughs> you shut up, and uh, just wait until. Uh, 12.01 on the Thursday that the movie releases and then you can, you know, give it one star. Like, now now you have to wait. Uh, That's all that this really does (laughs) to affect your life is that you have to wait until the movie comes out in order to register your uh, bad faith distaste for it.
1: Oh my god, free speech. Oh my god. Yeah, it's funny that they're all about their own free speech being impinged on, but anyone who's not I'm not I'm not going to get into it. Okay. It's it's but it is a funny argument, isn't it? Like to say that you your free speech is is being impinged when you're talking about something you literally have no you 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 have you just haven't seen. Sorry, I was mm. trying to say that more charitably, but like they literally haven't <laughs> seen it. And of course, you Matt and I will sit on here and we'll talk about our feelings and cuz I just love talking about feelings and predictions and certainly for me, mainly concerns about projects that are announced or people who are attached, but we still know we're not commenting on the film.
2: <laughs> mm.
1: Like, fair enough, you know, that's what Twitter is for guys, surely? No? Or any other platform, but but to actually like go to a review platform to talk about a film you've not seen, like, and, and that it has been used to Bring down a one rating of a film. I mean, I I frankly forgotten about Rotten Tomatoes. I think this says more about me than it does mm. necessarily the greater uh, way of um, consuming film. I remember being on that site all the time when I was a kid because there wasn't social media in the way that we that we had it then, and it was a great way of feeling closer to a film that I was really excited about, for example, because I could see reviews coming in from the US and it was like oh you know just part of engaging with that film coming out and a sense of how it was being received and going in watching it with that knowledge the idea that you'd even rate a film fresh or rotten to me just feels quite hacky and and the fact that Mm. oh the great kind of front line of this free speech movement is a site that that reminds me of uh, can't cook won't cook (laughs) like i just expect a green pepper to flash up at any moment like and i don't want to say storm in a a teacup it's good that rotten tomatoes even though i find it a little out of date what does it do it aggregates stuff and i was reading something on screen rant i think a particularly ranty article on screen rant that was talking about things being really unfair and reviews from years after pulling down scores and things being manipulated and it's like no that's what that's what happens over time like i will never forget the empire review of the phantom menace when when they corrected it from i think five stars to three <laughs> it yeah. essentially came with a little disclaimer of like we were just very excited we've, we've had a we've had a thing and we're talking about it now and that's why i like uh you look at publications like little white lies and they have sort of a three tier star rating system one the first yeah. one being like all about the anticipation like what you know and that is a lot to do with the industry really in terms of how you market a film how you package a film what the cultural sense around the film is going to be before it lands then a review of the actual film itself and then a kind of final well what did we learn from this how how do we feel about it in terms of expectations being met or surpassed or not at all um for example i uh recently just watched I Feel Pretty, which has come out mm. on, on Netflix. Amy Schumer starring Vehicle, um, written by Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein, who are a um, rom-com uh, writing duo. And uh, I watched it so you didn't have to. Not great. Not quite Fish Called Justice. <laughs> um, that would have been a heck of a twist. Um, <laughs> Rory Scavell is brilliant. Michelle Williams is a comic to order force, and she deserved better. That's my mm. uh, very quick review. How about that, Rotten Tomatoes? <laughs> and But the the kind of the lead up to that was just huge, and it's the same with the Rebel Wilson film, isn't it? Romantic, that's just come out on Netflix. Like the, the kind of the the announcement and the hype machine has started so early now that by the time a film comes out, we're almost sick of it. Either yeah. you cannot wait; it feels like you've been waiting so long to see it if you really want to see it, or you cannot stand the mere mention of it if you don't. And I think it's something that maybe this Rotten Tomatoes decision is going to be a little bit of a turning point. It's like, actually, maybe we should return to revealing a lot less because otherwise, you know, the more information that studios release about things in order to try and generate interest, well, it is going to generate interest, but very little of it is probably going to be positive.
2: Mm, Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think the thing uh to to go back to the little white lies thing i think the in retrospect thing i think is also really wonderful because to self-promote slightly here i just i published my top 30 movies of 2018 list like a few weeks ago and i when i was looking at the list i keep of letter on letterbox you know a ranked list of all the movies i see over the course of a year just so that that list is easier to put together at the end of the year (laughs) and i don't have to come like trawled through and tried to remember things there were a load of movies on there where at the time I would have rated them like four stars or whatever because I thought that was really fun but by the end of the year they would just like completely fall into the bottom of the list because they left no impression of me so something like Ant-Man and the Wasp which I really did enjoy I think Mm. is a really fun movie but like by the end of the year it's just kind of like oh yeah that came out yeah Yeah, that that did come out and I did go and see it in the cinema (laughs) but so I think that's uh, yeah, so that's one of the things I really love about Little White Lies in general, is that they do, in that that rating system, they do manage to encompass pretty much the entire emotional arc all of us go on yeah. <laughs> with a movie. It's really fascinating seeing how that plays out, uh, particularly if people listen to the podcast that they put out, Truth for Movies, where they have the writers uh, kind of go into those ratings in a little more depth, which is always fun to hear. But yeah, I think also... It's really funny seeing the and and upsetting on some level because it's just such like a waste of people's precious time on earth to be mad about Captain Marvel <laughs> and about not being able to voice their uh, opposition to its existence ahead of its release and things like that but uh, it, it is really funny seeing like just how much certain arguments have taken hold of People who want to put it as part of this kind of like broader culture war, and to make it seem as if Marvel and Disney or all these kind of like SJWs pointing pushing forward some like insidious progressive agendas. Like no, they're they're a big corporation. They're following where the money is, and the money is for the moment in you know diversity and trying to push for more representation. You know if uh, if if things changed, um, they'd be making like conservative uh agit prop tomorrow you know that's yeah. that's just the way the wind is blowing also uh, i'm sorry but like uh, captain
1: like captain marvel is not a progressive film just because it has a stunning blonde american woman as the star mm. Um, and it's hella militaristic, and I didn't like Wonder Woman, uh, which I of course love to mention at every opportunity because that's kind of like the. Uh, it's almost like being. Um, I'm not vegan anymore, so I have to have something to bring up that sounds <laughs> a bit a bit annoying and just dampens the mood for everyone. Yeah, it's it's, and, and because of that, it's not it's not against progressivism. It's not against SJW's. It's just misogyny, pure and simple.
0: Yeah, one of the arguments they've taken up is basically saying like, oh. Disney are trying to alienate half the fan base. It's like, no, they're really not. Like, there's plenty of people who are just excited to see it, regardless of sex or gender or anything, who are just like, oh, it's a new Marvel movie. Cool, I'll go watch it. And, like, it's got nothing to do with their views on feminism or anything. It's just, oh, it's a superhero movie, and it's, like, March, and we haven't had a really big movie come out for a while. So, sure, we'll go and watch that, and it, it looks fun. You know, like there's no real greater, deeper significance to it. And and a lot of it is it's specifically misogyny against Bree Larson, who has been fairly outspoken about things like um sexual assault and equality and things like that over over the years. So they really seem to have decided that she is there for yet. Which which culminated in the most jaw-dropping image ever shared on twitter Mm -hmm. (laughs) at least Mm -hmm. in this kind of very specific context which was a picture of her at some captain marvel kind of press event kind of like uh kneeling down to kind of talk to a young girl who's clearly very happy to meet her and then they put a picture of hitler meeting kind of like a small child next to it and they said just because and the text was just because you make children happy doesn't excuse your views or something like that and i was just like wow these people are insane. <laughs> like, they've gone so far down the rabbit hole on this thing. And uh, I think for, for some people, uh, there's, there's no going back, and they should probably just be written off as people who can have anything resembling some sort of uh, useful dialogue. Because, uh, yeah, I think if you're adversely comparing actors to Hitler because they think women should be treated equally to men, you're off your rocker.
1: Oh, but you know what? Whoever made that meme will probably get booked to be on uh, the new BBC Scotland channel anytime <laughs> soon. God, you know, not to get into that because, uh, frankly, I don't want to. But one thing, it's not nice when you see that you're, uh, the top trend in your hometown is Nazi. Anyway, mm. one final thing on Rotten Tomatoes. It's actually the second time I've heard about it this week. And uh, this is me trying to uh, bring, bring the podcast back round from Nazis. And uh, because the first time I heard about it was in a set shared by the late, great Brody Stevens, um, a Mm. set of his, sorry, that was shared in the news of his um, recent passing. And it's a smashing little joke that he forgets to say on stage, which he then says um, backstage to the camera. And he just says, yeah, my new TV show got a rating on Rotten Tomatoes. It got four pickles. (laughs) so i will probably start rating films in terms of pickles as a tribute to Brody. Mm,
0: i think on that scale probably the rugrats movies come out top our (laughs) Uh, our next news story and this will lead into our broader topic was the controversy that erupted Uh, particularly on film twitter but uh, i think kind of more broadly in the film community over steven spielberg who serves as one of the governors for the motion picture academy of arts and sciences uh, planning to put forth a motion to restrict the uh, eligibility of films for the oscars in the wake of the success of roma which was obviously a netflix movie and had a token theatrical release ahead of its nomination you know to kind of like to qualify and things like that and what they want to do Uh, what what Spielberg and uh, the other people on the governors who are kind of aligned with him want to do is to impose rules around that, that movies have to play in theaters for four weeks and you have to release like box office information and things like that and this has Promote caused kind of a like I said a split. On the one hand, people saying like, "Oh, look at old man Spielberg," not understanding that the industry is changing, and other people being like, "Well, you know that like Netflix, whilst they have they do produce a lot of things, they are kind of shady in a lot of ways, in that no one knows if anything they make is successful." (laughs) Like uh, we've talked about in in the past, like the only time that we ever know something that they make is successful as if they release the figures of the number of people who have watched a thing like the do bird box and mm. every other time you just have to guess based on the number of people tweeting about a thing and so it's kind of brought up uh, a lot of, it's kind of revived a debate about you know the 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 future of cinema streaming versus theatrical and also kind of throwing this up this kind of framing of you know old guard versus the new guard and i i i kind of don't really side with anyone in this debate i think it's quite complicated and like Mm. there are good things and bad things about both sides but uh but yeah we can we can get to that what what do you kind of think of this whole kerfuffle that's been kicked up emily
1: i don't know it is a kerfuffle isn't it and i just feel Mm. like it's really disappointing seeing the more and more people just being like old man yells at cloud because I think mm. this kind of I'm not really into this whole kind of um, purity kind of feeling. I, I don't think it's, I think it's rigging it. If you have it like only in terms of theatrical release for however many weeks. And this was it. Mm. Like as soon as that the statement came out, film Twitter was just like, Oh, it was selling like hot takes, you know? And, <laughs> um, you know, but, but, There are various people making excellent points. I want to say either way, but I I just, I just think like, I just wonder what everyone's ideal situation is. I don't understand what this, I don't know, utopia that Spielberg thinks is happening, that he's trying to protect. Mm. (laughs) Like, do you, and for the Oscars, who seem to be constantly trying to, as we've spoken several times before, and I'm sure we will do a little bit today, you seem to be just, just like desperately wanting to be relevant, to remain relevant. You, you, you have to evolve, and I think, I just think it's, it's really wonderful and open. And I think Netflix did a very good sort of PR move in launching that. What would you call it? It's not quite PSA. It's just a, it's just a little kind of. It's a little bit. Oh, hey, we're so great because we're telling stories, and literally everyone mm. we're featuring. Is from a Netflix original film or series and they all happen to be uh, women of colour, you know, sort of led, the charge led by um, Uzo Aduba. And and I I did, I did, I did feel something because you do get that window through Netflix, Mm. but then it does seem to be very pick and choose for Netflix as to who they want to seem to be. Yeah. Depending on um whether it is like, hey, look at this massive success with all the data, like you say with the bird box, or it's like we can create stunning content for previous Oscar winners to realise their dreams like Alfonso Cuarón and, and Roma. And then mm-hmm. Paul Schrader on Facebook talking about, well, yeah, but your algorithm and if you're pushing certain things to be more easily found. And and push that much more than are you? Can you really claim to be like an art film, you know, a platform Mm. for art film and and things, and a a production house of art film? So, I think Netflix is heading for an identity crisis, which it will inevitably weather. I think there was the announcement recently of um, BBC and ITV joining forces to create a streaming platform called BritBox um mm-hmm. as you can imagine many twitter users uh adjusted the name slightly uh to yeah. to give their feelings about it and there were lots of arguments flying about about like BBC license fees and royalties and it's like do we not understand how royalties work like come on <laughs> but the difficulty is the uh, the tv writer Sophie petzel um was talking about the thing is you know it's very hard to create a new streaming platform uh, in the market because Netflix and Amazon are such juggernauts and started early on as well. Mm. And you do just have the guarantee of something to watch. You will find something. But it is just the stuff that Netflix does just seems to sort of rise to the surface that much more. And I've gone on a bit of a tangent. But essentially, I think I think Spielberg is... Um, I don't know, A, why we expected anything different of him why wouldn't why wouldn't he say that that's his model that's the model he's come from that's the model he has made his name on of course he'd want to protect it that's kind of within his interests but shock horror someone who has a singular vision it doesn't seem to be as much of a team player unless it's his own team okay and then b i guess we're all looking to the oscars in terms of what they want to do and and how they're going to survive as uh, as they go forward and then um i guess see the same for netflix like how how does it want to be seen because it they they all seem to be peddling certain ideas of how film should be or at least their own models of film right and spielberg's the only one who's really like come right out and said it but i think this is just an incredibly tumultuous transitionary time more so than kind of turn of the millennium when you did have certain cameras made smaller and cheaper it's the same you know it's it's another wave it's a wave of wave of mm. wave you had you had this in in the 60s in france you had this in you know in america and other countries across the world as well you look at when new waves of filmmaking come in and it's generally to do with technological advances that mean more people have access to them but the funny thing about netflix is that it's not like everyone has access to it <laughs> it's still it's still a very certain set of people who have access to these things but where where else other than netflix can you find a lot of content genuinely that does feature just different yeah just more and and the fact that you through netflix you have access to like for example a huge swathe of like korean tv shows like it's Mm. just it's just the most incredible library even just beyond their kind of original series and productions and stuff so yeah, I kind of, I just want everyone to play nicely, Ed, and I don't feel like, <laughs> and I don't feel like Stephen is. He may, he may be, in one way correct, but he's not being particularly kind. I don't think.
2: Hmm.
0: I think, in terms of, um, I guess in terms of Netflix first, I think it is amazing the, the the people that they are allowing to make movies who otherwise just don't have an avenue like mariah gates who uh years ago spent a year only watching movies directed by women which was a big inspiration for me in terms of like doing 52 films by women i was uh i thought it was she she put a lot of movies onto my radar that i then went and sought out and i think she's a a, a wonderful advocate for female filmmakers she Talked about how Netflix was uh, last year produced, I think, 90 movies that were directed by women,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, or maybe movies and TV shows. But you know, that was I mean, that's a huge number, particularly in terms of Hollywood, where very few movies get made by women at all. And that's that's amazing, as are the you know, the opportunities they've given to filmmakers of color and uh, trans filmmakers, in uh, someone like Yancy Ford, who did. Uh, what was that called? Uh, Stone Island? Is that what that movie was called? That that great documentary from last year, and I think that that's all uh, that that's all absolutely wonderful. I think the the problem that I have again to go back to what Paul Trade said about like the algorithm their their business decisions are kind of dictated by what they think will be popular, which I think is true of a lot of studios, but it also means that they may not necessarily take the most chances like something like Roma is sort of a risky movie to kind of put a lot of money into and fund but it's also a movie directed by someone who's already won best director and and, you know has directed multiple movies that have made huge amounts of money so it's kind of safe it's a safe kind of risk taking and I think that that's a problem with their business model is that it doesn't really lend itself to really taking big swings on a lot of things but but they are willing to take risks on things that are made for fairly small amounts of money and giving people uh, maybe a kind of a way into the industry that they otherwise wouldn't have had. So that's obviously uh, that's obviously fantastic. But uh, like you say, like all their stuff is available only on Netflix, particularly their movies. Their TV shows they tend to put out on DVD, so people can actually buy them or, or just rent them from the actual Netflix service themselves, but they don't put any of their movies out on home media. Yeah. Which I think... Uh, is uh, exclusionary in the Mm. most basic terms. It means that if you want to watch Roma, you have to pay for the Netflix subscription. You can't just go to your local Best Buy or whatever and buy it, or you can't go to your local library and rent it. And that is, I think, a huge knock against them as a purveyor of class of, of um, worthwhile cinema that you know they are basically saying hey we're going to put all this money into helping people make this stuff but then we're going to put it on our service and, and unless you have this service you're not going to be able to watch it which uh, I, I don't think is great for cinema more broadly or for the careers of the people that they, they help up by making those movies and also just in terms of stuff like um, archival concerns and in terms of preserving those works for future generations like there's nothing i don't think there's any reason to think that netflix will necessarily exist in 10 years because it's all based on debt and vc funding like it could be around 10 years and but but there's no reason that i think oh this is a solid sustainable business model and what happens if that service you know kind of goes bankrupt in 10 years that all those movies they just disappear into the ether and no one ever sees them that's uh, concerning because there's a lot of great stuff on there, you know. I'd hate to think that we would lose like a shirk or a Roma because they never bothered to put them out on some sort of physical format. So, like that, those are kind of like some of my problems with with Netflix as a model. And also, um, they release all this stuff, but there's not really any sense of it as a meritocracy. Like,
2: yeah.
0: it's all based on what people have watched before, whether or not it shows up in their queue, or whether it's highlighted, and it kind of has to depend upon people sharing word of mouth. And on one level, that's that's that can create organic successes and people can discover stuff just because uh, critics discover, uh, will tweet about it and people go, oh, I'll check that out. And then they spread the word to their friends and things like that. Uh, or people like us will talk about it on our podcasts and people will hopefully go and seek out something like shirkers. Yeah. But it's not a it's not a great model for getting stuff out there, just throwing a bunch of stuff up all at once and thinking, ah, maybe something will stick. Yeah. Like, uh, so, so that's also not great for actually, you know, it's it's great that they are willing to put the money behind these things to either produce them or to just buy them at film festivals and then put them out there. But it's not necessarily the great model for allowing people to actually see them and, I think netflix's unwillingness to release the data on how many people are watching their stuff is is kind of a problem in that regard because it's just very hard to judge if they are a successful company outside of the fact that they show the office and friends which seem to be the things that do very well on that platform and then the occasional original program um based on like outsider metrics from like nielsen and things like that which are Sketchy and not necessarily accurate, but you know they're the only they're the only thing you have to go on because they don't release their numbers. So I think there are lots of things that Netflix. There are Netflix has lots of problems. I think as a as as a distribution oh, yeah. uh, format and as a just as as a platform, but at the same time, it can't help but look petty from someone like Spielberg who whose company produced green book which obviously won best picture at the oscars this year mm-hmm. and who seemed seems very put out by the fact that uh netflix kind of flooded the oscar kind of uh, voting academy with this huge pr campaign pushing the movie bigger than any campaign for any of the other ones and this sense that they are just kind of like trying to muscle in by spending huge amounts of money and so it kind of looks petty for them to do it. But but at the same time, I do feel like his requests are on some level fairly reasonable for the Academy, which is, you know, a private organisation that can set its own rules for what qualifies and what can be allowed to be nominated and like allowing something to be in theatres for four weeks, even if it's like a small limited run to qualify and releasing information so people can say okay this movie actually did people did actually go and see this thing isn't like the worst thing in the world it still feels quite petty again because of the broader context but uh, i don't feel like what he's asking is the worst thing in the world to ask but it is maybe being offered in the kind of like the shittiest way and like you said, in a way that feels uh, kind of mean and possibly vindictive. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, so I I think it's a very um, complicated situation, and I do feel like there is a the over reliance on the kind of the technological side with Netflix does lend a certain degree of conservatism to what they do. Yeah. And like the only place they really take big chances with their their original content is documentary because documentaries such a broad category that they will take a chance on something like shirkers this isn't a shirkers podcast by the way but i really <laughs> feel like people should check it out it's really good um but like pete they, they'll be willing to be like oh people like documentaries will just buy this documentary and show it and they maybe don't care that much about what it's about which also feels like it's not the best um the best approach uh, so our main topic this week um because obviously last week it was the Oscars, as we we just mentioned. And so this is kind of our autopsy of the Oscars <laughs> specifically <laughs> and this year's awards season in general. Now, I uh, watched all of the Oscars ceremony last week, so we'll probably uh, kind of get into that. And I also went and watched Green Book today because... I, and none of us, you know, when, when it was going to be all three others, none of us, none of us had gone to see Green Book. And I thought, well, someone probably should, because it was the big winner of the night, as I will kind of talk about that in a bit. But but Emily, first off, I just wanted to ask you, what were your thoughts on the the results? Uh, you, you didn't watch the, the ceremony, but you kind of caught up on it um, afterwards. In fact, I caught you upon some of it, because... You uh, were up very early, I think, uh, on the day afterwards, and I was up very late. So I was able to fill you in on some of the salient details.
1: Yeah, it's like we're almost in real time. Yes, yeah. you definitely took one for the team watching Green Book. Thanks, Ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's me ranting away about people who give reviews of films they haven't seen. And here we are. <laughs> Results! I think the interesting thing is is that, uh, for me personally, the awards season... Is pretty much BAFTAs, Independent Spirit, Oscars. So Mm. it kind of becomes as soon as the results come out, it almost becomes kind of for me sort of between a Venn diagram and then overlapping them on each other, and Mm. and seeing which strikes through the whole way, and where the outliers are, because for me that's just instinctively how I want to see like how sort of Western. English language filmmaking is at. I feel like between the BAFTAs which has this rather strange and you've got the Biffers as well of course but I feel like the Biffers are even more grassroots and exciting I think mm. generally even more so even than independent spirit to be honest um, and the Biffers do just seem to be a more fun time I, I think it's interesting to again, this is kind of a little bit off the back of the chat we just had there in terms of Spielberg. I do wonder, like, if you were to meet each of the awards ceremonies personified, who would that person be and what would they be like?
2: Mm. And
1: I do feel like the BAFTAs, because it it tends to be kind of the first in the calendar, and unfortunately it's almost sort of become indicative of how the Oscars are going to go. Like, people sort of Mm. um, use the BAFTAs as the warm-up act um always the bridesmaid and the fact that rich d grant didn't win at the baftas i think kind of made everyone um realize oh well if it's not going to happen on home turf it's not going to happen yeah
2: uh,
1: abroad and i think i'm amazed i didn't lead with that actually um rich d grant's lovely one man campaign of joy
2: mm. has
1: ceased to be um but it was perfect really because it wouldn't he wouldn't truly have been as British as he could have been if he'd have won like he's mm. you know I I think that just sums up the British narrative really looking like we're about to <laughs> about to just about be doing all right and then um, it's taken from us or at least it was for him um, I'll get on to uh, Olivia Colman um, mm. in a minute but in terms of this personification I do think the BAFTAs is a little bit like Rich D Grant like he's he's kind of he manages to be really quite charming with it, in, in a way that seems really whimsical and that isn't sinister yeah <laughs> i don't know how else to explain it but i think the BAFTAs has just such an interesting slightly and i and i mean tacky not in a not in a a, a, a passe way but tacky in a kind of sticky and and sort of residual sense like, it it can't quite figure out what being British is or means. Mm. And I think it has that even more so with English language films than the Oscars does. I mean, it's interesting that Best Film went to Roma. Um, and of course, you do have the separate category for Outstanding British Film,
2: mm. which
1: yeah. went to the favourite. And it's amazing how that always seems to feel like a consolation prize somehow like yeah. i'm not really one uh for national pride particularly not at the moment but it's very strange to me that you know the british academy is like i oh, will have a separate one it feels a little bit i don't know kind of like a little bit of a limp compromise it's either like mm. go big or go home lads you don't even have to go home you are at home <laughs>
0: <laughs> it does it does often feel like when a movie if a movie wins both it's kind of like an acknowledgement of like, oh no, this one's really good. Yes. Like, all of those other ones that just were nominated for best, or, or even if it's nominated for both, if a movie is nominated for both, it's like, oh no, this is like a proper movie. not yes. Just one of the ones that we drummed up and said was one of the best British movies because we wanted to pretend that we have an industry.
1: Completely. And I think it's interesting. And I think it's good that in many ways that the idea of what a British film is, is expanding. I mean, the Favourite is one of the best British films in the past five years. Yes, pretty much all of the cast, Barra, uh, Miss Stone, mm. are British. Made in Britain. Um, I'm not too sure about the rest of Below the Line. But we have this fantastic, you know, Yorgos Lanthimos, a fantastic Greek director. And who's managed to pincer the entire British establishment, like, perfectly in The Favourite. Like, it just feels horribly relevant yes it is March and there is something on my mind welcome join me but I feel like again in this sort of returning to this idea of like the personification of the Batters. in terms of the results it does seem like a very kindly headmaster who's trying on speech day yes you can tell which kind of school I went to um sort of, <laughs> sort of trying to make everyone feel included it's exciting that Letitia Wright won Rising Star I think mm. and the visual effects went to Black Panther not an awful lot of love for the rest of it. And and again, I think the outstanding debut by a British writer, director, or producer is always a little bit of a kind of again, it, it all it all feels a bit conciliatory and that's just in the British character. I think even when you win, it's kind of a there there. Um there's mm. not quite the sort of level of, of celebration. I think it's it's interesting and heartening as ever that the Independent Spirit Awards, you know, for a start, Glenn Close could be on stage with her dog. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, more of that, please. That Ethan Hawke got pretty much his only nod for First Reformed, a film that you and I both found incredibly affecting mm, yeah, by yeah. Uh, aforementioned um, provocateur Schrader. And uh, it's interesting, actually, that the only sort of overlap it had with the Oscars is Regina King, really, mm. in, in best supporting... Female. The other thing that I always forget is like I think the categories in the Independence Spirit Awards are so much better um that you've got the Altman Award, you know, for oh my god, ensemble. So uh, we were talking mm-hmm. about a couple of weeks ago, the John Cassavetes Award, which is just so hey, you know, and 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 that to me is the kind of category that's really exciting. It's about, like, yeah. we recognise your spirit and, and there is something really important in terms of a torch there, instead of, like, oh, y- you were good in a British way. <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> like, so, and, and, yeah, generally, like, just much more for If Bill Street Could Talk and a couple of films that just haven't really have have had the buzz, but, you know, will only actually get the awards at Independent Spirit, like Can You Ever Forgive Me? And You Never Really Here. And then, yeah big old big old oscar i was I was up um, for my paid job to do some stuff with the morning news, mm. so that meant i was kind, i thought oh you know i don 't actually have to look at Twitter for about twenty minutes um, until I get in because uh, the news is going to tell me everything um, and it did and I think the thing that is so remarkable and is something that we 've sort of touched on in various episodes uh, past conversations is exactly this idea of like well you're actually only really appreciated as a british actor with range when you go to america like mm. you know that that was in no way a oh you've won in a british way it's like you've you've won globally now that you've won best actress olivia the true yeah. the true queen and you know there was a lot of kind of talk of like oh, America, you have no idea who Olivia Colman is. And it's like, I'm pretty sure Broadchurch was uh, crossover and and could see, I don't know. I I think maybe, again, it's a little bit like, oh, now she's won an Oscar, she's ours. You can't have Mm -hmm. that. (laughs) I think the thing that was remarkable about that as well was that, I mean, I know she's winning for Best Actress and we all know she can act, but I've never seen someone so genuinely shocked almost to a level of maybe needing medical attention. Like mm. it was it was like the force of her name being called out pushed her back into her seat. Like yeah. and and it was just remarkable and quite lovely and massively deserved. I would also like to bequeath Olivia Coleman um with my own personal award for services to formal dresses with sleeves.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh
1: Helen Mirren and I established um not that long ago. So it's amazing. Her dress also had pockets, so fucking win. And and, and it's interesting that, you know, in terms of both Coleman and Richard E. Grant's personas and everyone's a little bit constructed and everyone's very genuine, right? I'm not trying to say this in the same line as that horrible Guardian article that was again, this very, you know, it was very typical of like, oh, is it all just constructed? And it's like, well, all public stuff is constructed. Like, (laughs) I'll slap you across the face with my copy of R.D. Lang, for God's sake. They both have this very and again, yep, not national pride, but I felt I'll, I'll say it to you Ed and to our listeners, a smidgen of patriotism because they, they both just seem to have a lovely time, but again Coleman, everyone's like oh yeah, she's so down to earth. she's so down to earth." yeah, she's very privileged, she's very aware of it and she didn't she managed to be like not self-deprecating mm. which I think is fantastic like, a lot of people are like, oh, is she affecting something? I'm like, no, no, no she's not, she's not saying she's bad she's just saying this is mental
0: yeah yeah when she said this is hilarious i've won an oscar <laughs> yeah, is, yeah I, th- I felt like oh yeah that's, that's probably what i would say <laughs> if it yeah, happened, because it's, it's just disturbing. something so out of the w- realm of what you would expect
1: exactly and it's surreal but it's but again she's not saying she doesn't deserve it she's not saying she mm. hasn't worked hard it's just for her incredibly surreal and, and and clearly she's been having a great time i'm immensely happy that she's won because. Beyond all of that, beyond all of the persona, she genuinely gave the best performance. One of mm, the best performances yeah. I've seen in a long time in terms of its range, what it encompasses. And it's nice to see at least one award <laughs> that was very well deserved. Oh, yeah. The others, not not so much. I think it's what I don't really understand and what maybe you would be able to enlighten me on, Ed, is how within the same year we can have the explanation of a certain Best Picture winner being kind of laid down at the door at the fact that in terms of the ratio of Academy voters, it's like white men of a certain age still. And yet most of them must have voted for Olivia Colman at the same time. It's it's Mm. interesting that it seems to be... Okay, a film that is, as in many ways, poking fun at the very idea of an establishment mm. run uh, and a patriarchal one at that is still underrun by a group of essentially what we would class nowadays queer women pulling <laughs> strings behind the scenes is, um, is, is lauded by the same group who think that Green Book is an Oscar winner.
0: Well, the explanation for green book winning that has been offered is that most of the other categories in fact in fact i think all of the other categories are it's first past the post so whichever one gets the most votes wins but for best picture it's ranked choice so it is yeah you you pick you know of the eight you say okay um roma was my number one uh green book was number two or whatever you know like they would rank it all if no film gets 50 percent on the first ballot you eliminate the last one and you share all the votes for that one amongst the others until you end up with one that wins and so basically people said that uh, green book probably didn't have the most votes on the first ballot and maybe not even on the second or third ballot but by the end you know it, it eventually Ended up with fifty percent plus one yeah. that you need for yeah. the film to be to win, and the idea being that they want it to be the consensus pick as opposed to like a situation where a movie gets you know from you know because you have the the, the as many as ten nominations like you if you have ten nominations and then a movie wins with. Like twenty five percent, and you say, "Well, seventy five percent of the academy didn't vote for, vote for this thing. How could you say it was the the winner?" And right. I personally think that's fine. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I think it's fine if a movie gets is the winner if it has like twenty five percent of the vote or whatever. Because this isn't uh, this isn't politics. <laughs> I don't think is it though, to, Ed. You, is it? Well, it's <laughs> very political, but it's not <laughs> politics. You, know, you don't want. Like I, I'm fine, you know, because um, some places in the states have ranked choice voting now, and it, that was most recently done in, uh, I want to say Maine. One of the congressional districts in Maine had to go to f- the go to rank choice, and uh, I'm fine with like a milk toast politician winning in a situation where it maybe shuts out someone who's more uh, fringy, but. Uh, not i don't think it necessarily is much use in art because i think uh, if you go for the most middle of the road and the blandest option you're just not really going to satisfy anyone and that is has been proved the case by the fact that green book winning was instantly met with apoplexy from a lot of people who were just kind of like oh my god how could you give it to that and like Having seen it now, I think that people who are saying it's like the new Crash in the, the reference of worst movie to win Best Picture are overstating the case a little bit. Like Crash is way worse a movie than Green Book on every conceivable level. Yeah. Um, it's it's not particularly worthy winner of Best Picture. It's just kind of a a very middling comedy drama that has some charming performers who are occasionally quite funny but for the most part it's just it just exists and you would have no real reason to think that it would even be in the conversation for for best picture and like most of the stuff that's objection about it is kind of like the metatextual things of the fact that the it's it it is you know i've seen some people try and push back and say oh it's not a white savior movie but it's totally a white savior movie because it's a story about you know it says it's based on a true friendship um (laughs) and it's the story of you know like they say oh it's you know about this friendship between this kind of white slightly racist guy and this black pianist that he drove around the south and all this sort of thing but like there that implies that there's some sort of equality to it and there isn't because there's i would say probably about 90 seconds in the movie where Don Shirley, the character played by Mahersha Ali, is in a scene by himself where he is not defined by his relationship to Tony Vallelonga, the character played by Viggo Mortensen. Whereas Viggo Mortensen's character, I would say there's probably about a good 10 to 15 minutes of the movie where he is shown on his own existing as he does as like a guy who works at the Copacabana and then with his family. And it is very much a sense of like, Oh, these are characters are not equal. This guy Mm. is, they're both kind of like stereotypes, but only one of them is given the chance to be defied, to, to kind of be given some semblance of depth by showing how they interact with all these different people and establishing their place in the world. And that, that element to it is, yeah, it is quite distasteful because it yeah. it but the fact that only one of them is given the chance to have any depth by definition makes the other one just kind of a more shallow figure and uh, on top of that you know just the fact that it it tri- it, it kind of nods in the direction of complex themes like the Don Shirley Don Shirley was uh, gay and that it kind of features into the movie a little bit but not very much it's just kind of thrown in there as like a slight complication to his character as opposed to a defining thing about him and the way he lived his life and mm. uh and it's kind of tossed off and there is a there is one line that acknowledges that hey you know racism existed in the north as well but it it broadly treats racism as a personal thing that is you know it's it's kind of a choice that people have you can choose to be racist and choose to be not racist and you can learn not to be racist and that is in a in a sense true people can be deprogrammed into not having racial animus but it ignores the fact that it's a systemic and a societal thing and it's based upon hundreds of years of imperialism and propaganda and completely fatuous race science and things like that they've just been instilled into Societies around the world for generations and generations, and it's like a much bigger thing than just some people choose to hate black people and use racial epithets. Like,
2: and yeah,
0: um, be, being kind of like a proponent of this very asinine fantasy that you know, oh, if we just talk to each other, we'll solve all our problems. In uh, an era where that has been proven to be completely not true, <laughs> that talking only gets you so far, and that there are some people for whom talking will never be a solution because they just believe that people who aren't white should be dead it does feel like a horribly retrograde and regressive movie for a for our times and it's kind of like that that's kind of like the the, the stuff surrounding the movie the movie in and of itself is just kind of it's, it's fine it exists it has some some moments that are funny some moments that are sweet but it doesn't really leave much of a memory. The, the the bigger problems of it is that you should not be making this kind of movie into twenty eighteen. It is not fit for purpose.
1: And it just seems like of all of the rematches that we thought were gonna happen this awards mm. season, I remember it being like, is it gonna be Jenkins versus Chazelle again? Yeah. Um and no, it's Spike Lee versus a movie <laughs> about racism and driving.
0: Yes. Yeah, as he he himself said, you know, I got snake bit every time someone's driving I lose yeah. <laughs> so that was the such a good joke
1: completely completely and then his fantastic uh, quote given to BBC News on the carpet on the way into the Vanity Fair party and uh, the BBC correspondent asked him what he thought of Green Book winning best picture and he said you're British right like yeah yeah with the BBC he's like right BBC here's a British answer for you it was not my cup of tea um, <laughs> which followed with a absolute cackle that i thought was um spectacular and you know managed to pull off a lot of what i think we're all thinking it's really strange because and again this kind of strange sense of recurrence and trying to there is this heightened scrutiny um and perfectly righteously so (laughs) on on filmmaking on culture on the oscars in particular but we managed to be not even sort of moving forward it seems or moving back just kind of ever twirling twirling (laughs) towards um you know don't blame me I vote for um Black Panther but uh (laughs) like Mahershala Ali this is his second Oscar for best Mm. supporting actor the first one being for Barry Jenkins for Moonlight which is one of the most beautiful queer black love stories (laughs) ever
2: yeah
1: hashtag emily loves moonlight She keeps going on about it and then now like what the fact that he even signed on and again okay yes i am going to be talking about um everything around a film without actually having seen it but i i am just talking about right how poorly green book did in terms of the campaign and the hype around it Mm. we've got vigo Saying the N word. Yeah, we've we've got Don Shirley's family coming out and saying they weren't consulted on anything. That the film is a pack of lies and an insult to in his memory. Uh, we've mm. got Charles B. Wessler, one of the uh, credited producers, directly emailing a journalist with ample use of um, all caps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's brilliant to mansplain your own film um, to a journal. That's always a really really good look. Uh, yeah. And of and of all the words to all caps in the phrase big ass responsibility went for ass, uh, which I, which I think is a, an interesting, interesting choice. Ooh. Yeah. No, it's just, I'm trying to think of something else to say about a film that involves driving other than this, but I'm sorry, I'm going for it. It's a car crash. Um, And Mm -hmm. and I, and I, and I think it will be like, it will go down, not even in like, I mean, in, in recent history, like of all the films that could have won, and that this is the one because it is this aggregate kind of median ranking voting system for best film, everyone thought it was all right enough. It's not even that it was mm. it's not even that it was amazing, it was just that everyone was like, Oh, yeah, you know. And oh nah, bad bad taste in the mouth.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and it does look especially strange when you consider the two films that it's following in the winner's circle are um, the aforementioned moonlight and shape of water and whatever people
2: mm.
0: may think of of the shape of water i know it has a lot of detractors uh it is a it is not like any movie that has won best picture previously <laughs> it is a very distinctive and strange movie and moonlight was an incredibly distinctive movie and definitely unlike any movie that ever won best picture and it really does feel like As much as the broader body of the Oscars has been diversified over the last couple of years and that will hopefully continue for years to come as they start to weed out some of the older people who maybe haven't worked in the industry for a while and are going to kind of get emeritus status, which I think is something that's only going to kick in in a couple of years. Um, This does feel like kind of a a reversion to the mean for the Oscars of picking something that just feels kind of like very, very safe um certainly i mean also in terms of the other movies it was nominated against like i feel like it's not as much of a disaster for everyone involved as it would have been if bohemian rhapsody had won mm. because technically uh green books a way better way made movie than bohemian rhapsody yeah, is. Yeah. Uh, it, it's uh, assembled by people seemingly by people who understand how movies are made and uh edited in such a way as um there is coherence from scene to scene and all the dialogue scenes look like they've been put together by people who understand how dialogue is meant to flow and things like that
1: and you know the director only has one instance of flashing his penis at a casting crew rather than like decades of um abuse of minors um going back decades so you know that's fine isn't it
0: that is kind of the other thing as well is um watching the ceremony it was kind of an interesting it was an interesting game watching the people who won for Bohemian Rhapsody um, for the things it definitely shouldn't have won for, like sound mixing and editing, which, of course, was the most hilarious choice of the night Of, of as they came up to winning and just kind of, like, passing who they were thanking yes. and being like, want to thank, you know, my team, the crew. Ooh. At one point, someone said, Brian, Ooh. and I was like, oh, May. <sighs>
2: just kind of like... <laughs>
0: Yeah, every everyone being like having a sharp intake of breath because um yeah they they couldn't they couldn't fa- they couldn't thank the guy who at least began to direct the movie because he is a uh, an alleged sex offender uh credibly alleged sex offender who uh should be drummed out of the industry and in prison and that was you know that that's kind of like why one of the reasons bohemian rhapsody winning apart from it just being bad is um yeah it winning best picture would have been just kind of like uh, a dereliction of duty uh, by by everyone involved so like of the choices like the Bohemian Rhapsody feels like the one that would have been uh, an eternal stain on the Academy as opposed to Green Book which probably feels at most like it would just kind of be forgotten in a few years time like I I don't think it's going to have the the long lasting stench to it that a Crash does or a a Driving Miss Daisy does it's going to be more like a I don't know like an Out an out, an out of Africa or something, one of those movies where oh, yeah. everyone, everyone seemed like to say, okay, fine, at the time, and then everyone, years later, is just kind of like, oh, that one, okay. And, you know, doesn't really think much of it.
1: I would like to thank Mr. Singer, and by that I mean Freddie Mercury. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you mean. It's kind of like, I think the thing is, is like Green Book, from what I've heard, has ranged from... People have seen it. It's either deeply offensive and misses the mark Mm. hugely, or it's something that is essentially a Farrelly film, which is sort of bad taste humour, but has a sweet heart at points. It's just not. That's why on earth pick him for that film, because on any level, it just seems to be just just a mismatch. And that and it and it sounds like uneven in tone to me.
2: Mm, and yeah. maybe
1: it'll just be one where everyone's like, Oh yeah. I mean, the, the one of the best picture winners for me, you know, the artist, it's like, oh yeah, I guess mm. that was kind of one that sort of harked back to something. And Green Book is a best picture winner. There was the almost immediate response um from Seth Myers and Amber Ruffin in that absolutely glorious mm. sketch, which manages to just kind of skewer every single Uh, white saviour film you could ever hope to see and it I think it's just this year will be remembered as a year of like clashes like there was just no kind of cohesion Mm. to anything that was it I was like and this is why I think like everything seems to be going through an identity crisis in terms of each of the awards boards and and academies and ceremonies like baffys as well and it's like well an identity crisis can either be a great time to like flush out things that don't fit anymore for whatever reason obviously if it means more civil rights the better but it's things like how can green book win in the same year that hannah beecher and ruthie carter mm. you know and i think i think that's it it's just like well that's just that's just a head scratcher but then that is something where it's like are you trying to please everyone and, and going yeah. back to our earlier conversation news of like you're alienating half your audience it's like no we're just trying to tell stories about essentially good and evil <laughs> And, mm. and at some point, you you do need to take a stand on what is evil. <laughs> like, yeah. Is that just? Is, is it just me? Is this thing on? And I think with Bohemian Rhapsody as well, Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody to me are surprises in terms of like the actual messages that they're getting across are are really quite sinister. But they're just really they're portrayed in a really passe way. Do you know what I mean it's not? Mm. It's not like it's even like uh, your um, uh, your creative racism or homophobia. It's just the same stuff we've seen over and over again. Yeah. They are incredibly like it, it was when you said safe there. I was like, well, it's safe because it's familiar, and something yeah. awful can still be familiar. And from what I've seen of Bohemian Rhapsody, again, very bad. Sorry, I haven't really been to see a lot of these massive hypocrite. Here we go. What a surprise. But from what I've seen, Bohemian Rhapsody is like, well, this is Walk Hard. And we've we've spoken about Walk Hard mm. and how brilliant it is and how after Walk Hard happened, there just seemed to be a dearth of any of these kind of biopic films being made because it revealed all of the tricks. It took you behind the curtain and was like, oh yeah, we can laugh at this because this is literally what everything is doing. But that just seems to be what Bohemian Rhapsody was, was doing. And I'm just Mm. amazed that these films that are just not even particularly, well, I mean, like you say, Green Book was technically better made (laughs) than, than Bohemian Rhapsody. But these, not, not like crazy blockbuster, but like anticipated, and crafted films are still just so cliched. Yeah, that's staggering to me.
0: I think in the case of like the *Walk Hard* and Bohemian Rhapsody* comparison, I think it's like the thing that *Walk Hard* did really well was it the LHA pointed out the cliches, but I think it also inadvertently points out how well those things work because one of the things that I really love about *Walk the Line* is uh, *Walk Hard*. Sorry is that you by the end of it you do care about (laughs) dewey cox's arc and like you know you you do kind of get involved yeah you do get kind of emotionally involved in the journey that he's been on and i think that the success of bohemian rhapsody shows uh, is basically that you know oh these cliches all they all still work people still like these kind of very simple portraits of artists with familiar well-known songs it's just that you either need to do them really well or you need to just pick an artist that people really, really like. And like enough people really love Queen that they're happy to sit through just something that is just so kind of paint by numbers because they like the songs. And uh, yeah, that's probably going to spur a lot of, uh, maybe that maybe will spur a a revival of those kind of movies more broadly. And uh, we may not go through the sort of dry spell of the last ten years where if you wanted to make a biopic of an artist you had to be smart about it, you know, like um uh was it Don Cheadle who did the yes. the Miles Davis Miles ahead? where yes. he, he like specifically called out war card and said, yeah, we watched it, to say, okay, this is what we're not going to do. <laughs> and, um, you know, like you, you had people like that. Or something like um, Get On Up, the James Brown biopic from a few years ago, which I think is um a really underrated movie and a movie that really does try to avoid as many of the cliches as possible and, and offer a more complicated vision of its subject than certainly Bohemian Rhapsody does of Freddie Mercury. Uh, before we, we finish, I, I'll just offer some quick thoughts on the ceremony in general. I thought that the lack of a host worked surprisingly well. Yeah. I know that a lot of people, myself included, kind of went in assuming this would be a disaster. But then as it was going along, I thought, oh, this is just basically what 80% of the Oscars is anyway. <laughs> because so much of the Oscars is you have the host comes out, does a monologue. Occasionally they come back to do recurring bits you do some unfunny thing where you get ordinary people involved and that's then the rest of it is just famous people standing up and reading prepared remarks and then going on you know to to hand out the awards and when you remove the host you actually remove a surprisingly large amount of the chaff um mm. unless you have someone who's like just like really on it and really good and can make those kind of things sing like you know when like when John Stewart hosted it for the second time, and there was that there was a bit of a pop to it, and he was able to do um, wonderful things. Like when he pulled Marquetta Riglova back because she didn't get a chance to deliver her speech for winning for once, and he was like, "Oh no, no, she didn't get to say anything," and things like that. You know, if you have if you have a good host, then that sort of stuff goes by and it works really well. If you have someone like Neil Patrick Harris, who can be very good as a host, but gets saddled with just Bits that don't work like that. That insane thing with the like the case. I don't know if you remember that from when he hosted but there was this thing where they said oh the 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 results or predictions of the results are in this like glass case and they kept cutting back to the case throughout the whole night and like within the first 20 seconds of them talking about this case it was clear the bit was not working but they had like seven or eight callbacks to it planned (laughs) and like that for me is like the ultimate example of why of how hosting can go wrong when you just overcomplicate things and it becomes uh, a real millstone around their their neck. So I thought that not having a host worked more or less fine for what they wanted it to do, which was to keep things moving along. It's still, I think, overran by like fifteen minutes, but it's the Oscars. That's what happens. Yeah. Um in terms of speeches, Regina King's speech was great. Uh, it was really good to see it. Spike Lee gave a really great speech. I thought it was really good to see him win. Although, as I've said, yeah. the screenplay for Black Klansman isn't its strongest element. So, mm. it, so him winning for that maybe felt a little bit like kind of a make a make right for 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 years and years ago. Though, he should have won for do the right thing or Malcolm X. But at the same time, you know, you can't begrudge. Spike Lee winning an Oscar because he's yeah. uh, one of the great American filmmakers of the last, like, three decades. So him winning maybe for the weakest part of a movie he worked on is is not uh, a capital crime by any means. Like, I'm glad Spike Lee won an Oscar and that he got to go up and leap into Samuel Jackson's arms and hug him and then deliver a, a really barn burner of a speech. Um, yeah, just like and the, the songs were okay i guess like the only one that really stuck out of course was the performance of shallow which everyone uh has been dissecting in minute detail since uh as as is only right given everyone's kind of fascination with the gargar and cooper dynamic and uh that that for me felt like a really palpable moment in the ceremony and yeah i think i think the the thing for me that I like about the Oscars is when you do get to see a little bit of of the humanity um, break through into mm. these kind of very well oiled machines that are the ceremonies. I think you definitely saw that in Olivia Coleman. You know, for for whatever people want to say about it being like affected and everyone having something of a persona when they're at the Oscars and they're on stage and things like that, I felt like her reaction and her shock being a considerable underdog because everyone thought Gun Close was going to win was was really wonderful and beautiful and I think that will probably stay with me a lot longer than any of the bullshit around Green Book. Yeah. Uh, And uh, in terms of trivia I was really happy to see Alfonso Caron win for cinematography because I think that makes him the first person in Oscar history to have have an Oscar for directing, editing and cinematography because uh, most people only get one obviously they only uh, major in one area and I think some people... You know, some editors make the transition into directing and some some cinematographers do. Rarely do you have people who do all three. So I thought that was really uh, interesting that he achieved that. Uh, And particularly that he achieved it before, like Soderbergh, who, if you had asked me which major filmmakers will win all three of those awards at some point, uh, probably Soderbergh would have been my pick.
1: Well, he got the deck and I'm very pleased for him. I think it's interesting that going back to the point about the shallow performance... Um, yeah. And kind of wrapped in with the Oscars as a live event. I mean, the Oscars is a live event for run by, you know, stage managers and things. But it's, it's essentially populated by people who always have another shot at doing it again. Mm-hmm. So to have these people who are essentially populating something where you can't, like, that's it. We're doing it live. There's no more take. You have to do it in one. You see the people who really relish that, and they're a bit more, maybe have more of a theatre like stage background, or are comedians. But I think Lady Gaga like own that performance because that's what she does. It's not, it, and this mm. isn't to belittle her acting. This is to emphasize how powerful um, that performance was because she is essentially a live performer, like in in yeah. terms of, and and that's just one of her biggest concerts, like that's nothing compared to what she was doing for the Super Bowl. Um, but I think she did feel that was possibly the most kind of comfortable maybe she felt in the same, in a similar vein. I think she felt as like, can't really believe I'm here in the same way as Olivia Colman. Um, mm. um, but that was her moment to really shine. And I think that really did give, there's just such a heart to that performance because that's just her at her absolute best, knocking it out of the park and I really enjoyed watching it so yeah more of that
0: mm. Mm. yeah it really felt as if she was embodying the spirit of uh Jenna Maroney and uh, living theatrically in real life That's, uh...
1: oh and you know what <laughs> Olivia Colman winning not only swept away uh you know we're remembering that much more than uh all of the furore around green book even the ceremony just you know being like oh yeah we're just not really going to bother with cinematography <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh it's a u-turn just in time indeed
0: we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with shot of first shot recommends in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you the listeners will enjoy it as well emily what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week
1: i am catching up with barry bill hader's mm. limited series i don't even know what to call it. it it is a sitcom i think it's a very dark sitcom mm. character-led and it's ridiculously charming, and there's genuine genuine threat and peril throughout the whole thing. Barry mm. for someone who is a clearly a very traumatized person but not actually a very angry person or just has a different tone of anger um Bill is just absolutely brilliant um I think in particular, like he and Kristen Wiig are two of the best all-round actors to come out of the SNL um, pack of cards um, as they're shuffled this is clearly a passion project for him, it manages to lance a lot of stuff about the pomposity of acting but also get to the real heart of it and of people trying to find a purpose and find passion Henry Winkler's having a whale of a time as um, an alternately brilliant and then bonkers acting teacher um and i think that's it it manages to make it, it just shows everyone can be completely mad and then also very genuine all at once <laughs> if they have a fashion mm. so i mean i'm enjoying it i think the tone is enviably even and it still manages to be very funny and very dark so i'm a few episodes in i'm looking forward to finishing the rest of it i am watching it on now tv and i'm not sure where else you can watch it but yeah I just just love Bill Hader he's great
0: (laughs) yeah I need to catch up on Barry I watched the first few episodes when they aired and I really really loved it but it uh, just fell off and uh, yeah I need to catch up before season two starts because what I did see looked uh, really great and it does seem like a great outlet for Bill Hader who yeah like you say is just uh, phenomenally talented Uh, I'm gonna recommend a documentary that I watched which came out a few years ago and it's currently available on American Netflix. It's called Harold and Lillian, A Hollywood Love Story.
2: Ooh.
0: And it is a documentary about Harold and Lillian Michelson, who were a married couple who worked in the Hollywood film industry for about 60 years each. Uh, Harold Michelson was uh, initially a storyboard artist. He worked on things like The Birds and Marnie and then later worked uh, closely with Mike Nichols on several projects. He was the person who came up with the idea of framing Benjamin in Mrs. Robinson's leg in The Graduate. Uh, He is like a a, a hugely, he was a hugely talented storyboard artist who then moved into uh, production design and worked on a lot of movies for uh, amongst others, Danny DeVito, who he he worked with very closely for, for many years and also was Oscar nominated for production design on star trek the Motion picture where he came up with the idea for the um the kind of the tubes in the engineering bay which are now kind of a standard part of all star trek uh lore uh, which i found very cool and his wife lillian was a film researcher who ran a film library which moved around a couple of different locations over the years uh, it was based at the afi for a while then it was at american zoetrope paramount eventually dreamworks and she emerges as the real star of the film more so than than harold partly because uh, harold passed away some years ago and she is still alive but also because i think the idea of a film researcher is a little lesser known and the role of a film researcher is lesser known uh you know she was someone who provided research materials for for people who wanted to make movies you know set during certain time periods so she would go and research for example the underwear that uh jewish people in russia in the 1800s would wear for fiddler on the roof oh, <laughs> so she would like go out and you know she describes going and sitting in outside uh or in a deli in like a jewish part of hollywood until and talking to some of the older jewish ladies there until someone could kind of like and asking if they knew anything and then you know this this one kind the old lady like went home and then brought back material that she still had from when she grew up in russia in the 1860s or whatever and uh she talks about being friends with david lynch when he was working on a razorhead because he would come into the afi library and pick up research materials uh and she said that he was the only person who would ever pick up a book and then make sure he put it back exactly where it was from so david lynch good egg by all accounts um <laughs> And there's a wonderful bit where she's talking about working, being based at American Zoetrope whilst One from the Heart was being worked on. And Tom Waits coming into the library and talking to her and reading. And she describes him. She has the best description I ever heard of Tom Waits, which was saying, you know, he said everything in this gravelly voice. Everything he said sounded like a police confession.
2: (laughs) Ah. (laughs) Which
0: is, for me, about as perfect a description of the appeal of Tom Waits as you're likely to find. And yeah, between them, they just present this real fascinating account of what by all accounts looks like a real lovely wonderful marriage between two people who cared for each other and supported each other very much but who both also worked in areas of the film industry that are often under understood underrepresented in terms of what people think of the film industry involving and i think it does a really really wonderful job of showcasing what contributions those below the line jobs can bring to movies including these really iconic movies that people think of as being like oh you know mike nichols and the graduate and and all of the great innovations to editing and framing and transitions that he brought to that and then thinking oh a lot of that stuff came from uh harold michelson like drawing these storyboards and thinking okay what would be the best way to do this and then them transposing that to to cinema so that's uh, just a really it's a really lovely 90 minute documentary uh, that I found incredibly uh, warm and charming. Sounds ace. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, Spotify, Acast. Uh, Leave us a review, rate us, and recommend us to your friends. It's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different, but until then, it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me. Oh, please wrap up. Right, okay. (laughs) Had to, sorry. (laughs)